You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. All right, good morning. You have a Bible with you if you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. And this morning, our text is verses 12 through 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Give everybody a moment to make their way there. And when you do, I invite you to follow along now as I read from God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. When the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. May God Bless now the preaching of his word. It happened in my hometown, in the Washington, D.C. metro station, writes Pastor C.J. Mahaney. And he says, I am sure, had I been there, I would have walked past it without a single glance. In 2007, he writes, the Washington Post organized an experiment During the morning rush hour, world-famous violinist Joshua Bell stood incognito in the entrance of the LaFont Plaza metro station and played a brilliant classical repertoire for 45 minutes. It was, as Washington Post reporter Gene Weingartner explained, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. Joshua Bell routinely fills up concert halls worldwide, Mahaney writes. Days before, an audience in Boston had paid around $100 apiece to see him perform. In LaFont Plaza, He was playing a Stradivarius made in 1713, reportedly worth $3.5 million. But on that Washington morning, the virtuoso collected $32.17 from the passers-by who stopped. Most of the 1,000-plus commuters who hurried through the station that morning didn't even slow down. Then CJ writes this, I don't think I would have slowed my pace either. If I had been rushing through the LaFont Plaza that morning, 
I might not have even noticed him. He was hidden in plain sight. If we aren't observant this morning, we could easily rush right past these five verses that I just read and miss what is hidden in plain sight. The passage I just read this morning just revealed to us a climactic moment in Luke's gospel. This is a very big moment. What just occurred in these five verses is the unveiling of God's glorious plan to use ordinary men to advance the mission of Christ. And this event that's recorded here in these five verses, it impacted world history, and it continues to impact us this very morning. However, due to the ordinary less than spectacular manner in which this event occurred, this glorious plan could easily be overlooked or minimized and remain hidden in plain sight. That's why I am eager this morning for us to direct our attention to these five verses. Because see, as opposition grew, And as the number of disciples continued to multiply, and as his death was on the horizon, Jesus made a strategic decision. At this point, after the opposition, the disciples multiplying, and his death on the horizon, Jesus made a strategic decision to appoint 12 men to be his apostles. And he did this for a reason. By calling these 12 men to be his apostles, Jesus laid the foundation on which his church would be built. That's why this moment is is a climactic moment in Luke's gospel. At this point, the church of Jesus that we have benefited from and are a part of this morning the foundation was laid. This is a climactic moment because by God calling these 12 men to be apostles, Jesus was laying the very foundation on which his church would be built. So I want us to reflect on this moment this morning. And I want to divide our text into two sections. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. We see in verses 12 through 13, The church is God's plan to advance his mission. And then verses 14 through 16, we're going to look at the men Christ chose to build his church. Let's begin by going back to verses 12 through 13. And let's see that the church is God's plan to advance his mission. And I want to read these two verses again. We're told by Luke, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 
12, whom he named apostles. Luke informs us on this occasion, Jesus went away to a mountain to pray about a major decision that had to take place. That's what's happening here. Jesus is about to make a big decision, and Jesus spends the night on this mountain in prayer. See, because this decision was so weighty and would have such massive implications for the, for the future, Jesus, we're told, stayed up all night to pray to the Lord. And, and this term that, that, that says Jesus stayed up all night, even though we've heard in Luke's gospel up to this point, and we'll hear it many more times, how Jesus was devoted to prayer and committed to prayer, This phrase in our English Bibles is only one word in the Greek, and it only appears this one place in the entire New Testament. So the emphasis is strong here. It's not just that Jesus prayed, and and he prayed some in the night. He prayed all night long. Now, have you ever had to make a major life decision, and the night before you couldn't sleep, you found yourself restless, wondering, am I making the right decision? Well, that's what's going on here. However, Jesus didn't spend these sleepless hours worrying or strategizing. Instead, we're told he was praying. And he did so. He did so in order to know the will of the Father. That's what it means when it says he continued in prayer to God. It's not just saying he prayed to God. The the, the implication of of the grammar here is that Jesus is going to, because he's about to make this big decision and he wants to know God's will. He wants to know. He wants to hear more than he's just wanting to go and talk to God. He's wanting to hear from God. He wants to know I'm about to do something tomorrow that's going to impact my mission here and the mission that will continue on until I return. And so this is a big moment. God, I want to hear from you. See, the language here is significant because it alerts us to the fact that the event that's about to take place the next morning is very important. And... The event that's going to take place the next morning is God's plan. See, Jesus didn't just come up with this idea. You know, it's it's probably better if I have all these disciples, and there's so many of them. You know, it's not like Jesus read a management book that says, it's probably better if I have 12, and those 12 are over a few, and then they'll be over a few, and I'll just report to the 12, and the 12 report to me. And that's not what's happening here. This was God's plan. And Jesus knows the next day he's going to implement that plan. So he spends the entire night thinking through this decision. Look at verse 13. Luke writes this in a way that right after he tells us in verse 12 that he stayed up all night. Then he says, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now we know why he stayed up all night. 
Jesus stayed up all night because the next morning he is going to call everyone together and he's all of a sudden going to set apart these 12 men. Now we can move right past this quickly, but actually a lot's being said here. First of all, notice Jesus picks these 12 men among his disciples. It doesn't say these are his 12 disciples. There appears to be, if you look ahead to next week, many disciples. So among these disciples, we have to ask the question, why choose an inner circle? And why 12? Why not 6? Why not 7? Why not 10? Why not 20? Why 12? And why call them apostles? That's not a name we see in the Old Testament. It's not Jesus is carrying something over from the Old Testament to the New. Why call them by this name? And most importantly, why these 12? Why these men? That's the the thing that Jesus spent all night asking God for clarity on. And it's apparent that God had a very specific plan for these apostles. And Jesus is eager to implement this plan. And that's exactly what he did. He called the 12 men by name whom God had chosen to be apostles. And by being called to be apostles, they're going to fulfill a strategic role, a role that would lay the foundation for the church. Now, it's important in verse 13 when we're told that after Jesus called these 12 It says he named them apostles. It doesn't say he called them apostles. He named them apostles. And think about in the Bible, when you name something, something has now been created. He's now created this new group of leadership. Like I said, there were no such thing as apostles in the Old Testament. Jesus is now creating a new structure of leadership. Think about the book of Acts. Who's going to lead the church now? It's not going to be the leaders of the temple. It's not going to be the religious leaders in, 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 in Judaism. So now there are these new leaders, these Apostles, they are going to be leading these followers of Jesus in a new way. And yet, though this is a new position of of leadership, this new position of leadership is not untethered from the story of Israel. Think about it. Why did the Lord choose 12 apostles? Well, in the same way that Israel was given shape and structure through the 12 sons of Jacob, the church's foundation will be built on the 12 apostles. Listen to what Luke tells us later on in Luke 22, verses 28 and 30. Luke 22, 28 and 30, he says this. You are those who stayed with me. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. You are those who stayed with me in my trials. And I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So not only do they mimic the 12 tribes of Israel, they're over the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 were picked. Why why 12? Because they're meant to be symbolic. These 12 are now over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then listen to this from Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 12, we get this picture of the new Jerusalem. It has a great wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So do you see why this is a climactic moment? What Jesus is doing here isn't just dividing up labor. The foundation for the church is being laid. See, if Jesus fulfills all the promises of Israel, then he's creating a new people. And you know what these new people are called? The church. He's creating a new people because Jesus fulfills, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 in the preface, Luke tells us that by Jesus coming, all the promises God had made from the beginning of time till his present day, all the promises of God found their yes and amen in him. He was fulfilling all of Israel's promises. Therefore, Jesus is now creating a new people, and these people are called the church. Paul refers to them in in Ephesians 3.20. He tells us about the role these apostles will play. In Ephesians 3.20, he says this, or 2.20, He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these apostles are now building, they're they're, they're the foundation to this new people that God is creating called the church. And we know that this is the case because of Luke's sequel. Remember, Luke writes a sequel. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. It's the narrative of after Jesus has died, been raised, and is ascended, he then now sends out these 12 apostles, and they do what? They begin to build the church. Well, that's all happening now here in seed form in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Do you you see what's hidden in plain sight now? Jesus was laying the foundation for the church that day when he called these 12 men to be his apostles. And that foundation in which Jesus 
set in place that day has been built on for over two millennia. And God has used the church that, that has been built on the foundation of the apostles to reach countless people from all over the globe. And one day, we see a picture of this in Revelation 5, one day the church will be made up of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And it all started taking place right here on that day. Now can you see why Jesus stayed up all night and prayed all night? Because he was aware tomorrow is a big day. It will shape not only the future on this earth, it will shape eternity. Now that we've seen what was happening on that day, let us now zoom in. Let us now look at the men Christ chose to build His church in 14 through 16. It's one thing, now that we've seen Jesus is going to start building His church and He's going to make the foundation of His church, these 12 apostles, but now we hear them called by name. Let me read these names again, beginning in verse 14. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot became a traitor. Why these men? I mean, it's one thing that it, it was the plan of God to choose 12 apostles to basically become the foundation for the church in the same way that 12 sons of Jacob formed the foundation for Israel. Okay, we get that. But what about these Men, ask yourself, are these the best men for the job? I mean, after all, the foundation of the church is about to be built on them. Are these the best men? Jesus chose these guys. What can we learn from this list of names? Probably Numerous things, but I, I want to point out just a few lessons we learned about the church from this list. Once again, th there's a lot going on in this list of names that we could just move right past. But I think some important things are being stated here for our good. Here's the first lesson we learn by looking at this list of names. Unity in Christ is crucial for the sake of mission. Unity in Christ is crucial for the sake of mission. If, if we're going to fulfill the mission that Christ gave us as His church, unity in Christ is crucial for the sake of mission. Now, why do I say that? 
Well, all 12 men were called to be apostles and had the same mission. However, which that mission, by the way, is to advance the kingdom of God by proclaiming the coming of the king. Their main job, as we see in the book of Acts, as 12 apostles was proclamation through proclaiming about Jesus, him crucified, risen and reigning. They were going to advance the mission of God. That's what these 12 men were to do. They all had the same calling and yet they had very different backgrounds, do they not? They have very different backgrounds. Let me just draw your attention to two names in verse 15 that we can move right past. But when we stop and consider these two names, we, we, we see something very helpful. We're first of all told the first name in verse 15, Matthew. If we compare this with Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and John's gospel, we realize that this Matthew is Levi, who we met earlier, the tax collector. This is Levi, the tax collector. And then we come to the end of verse 15, and we meet Simon, who is called the zealot. Now, why is this significant? Well, I want to read a little excerpt from the Sovereign Grace Journal. I'll say more about it in a moment. But our family of churches for over a year now has been putting out a quarterly journal in which they will pick a subject and pastors from our family of churches write articles in this journal. You can have a hardback copy or you can read it online. And a number of journals ago, a pastor from Cross of Grace Church in El Paso, a friend of ours, Ricky Alcantar, he, he, he commented on these names. And this is what he said. One of the 12 disciples of Jesus was broadly known for his political affiliation so that it became a part of his name and identity. Simon the Zealot. This designation is likely due to Simon's nationalist political leanings and his zeal for Jewish independence from Rome. The Zealots would later emerge as actually a formal political party, a group of activists seeking to overthrow the Roman government who often resorted to violence. Alongside Simon in the group of 12 disciples was Matthew, the tax collector. It would be different, Ricky writes, to find two more politically and naturally opposed people in Judea. Zealots were feared for wanting to overthrow an unjust Roman government, while tax collectors were despised for collaborating with the Roman government. And these two men lived and ministered and worked alongside each other. And then Ricky asked this question, but how? Here's how. Their relationship to Jesus superseded their relationship to political concerns. Their political concerns or opinions were not meaningless, but allegiance to Jesus 
and his cause rendered them secondary at best. And it was their relation to Jesus that transformed their relationship to one another. And then he ends with this. Christians should feel a greater sense of identification with each member of our church family, whatever their politics may be, than we do with those who share our politics but not our Savior. So let me ask you this question. Is that true of you? Do you find far more continuity and unity and camaraderie with people who share your political views but they don't share your Savior than with people who share the Savior but may vote differently than you? Behold the disciples. Matthew the tax collector. Simon the zealot. Putting aside their past and their differences because they had a single focus. We now have been recruited for King Jesus. And our allegiance to him trumps our allegiance to any nation, people, or agenda. Not to say that those things are unimportant. They're not central. He is. And church, if we are going to fulfill our mission as a church, we must have Unity in Christ. And the emphasis is on the in Christ part. We often talk a lot about unity, but unity is just a word we can throw around unless we're, unity has an, a, an object, a subject in which we're rallying around. And, and listen, our unity must be in Christ. Who we are in Christ should be far more important than anything else about us. So the question is, is that true of us? We need to care about our nation. We need to be involved in government and politics. The question is, does our allegiance to King Jesus unify us over any other allegiance to any party or platform? There's a second thing we take away from this list of names. Not only do we see the importance that of unity, but this list of names reveals to us God's design for diversity when it comes to giftings and callings. Why do I say that? Take Peter, for example. In all four Gospels, Peter's name is mentioned first. And you may think that's insignificant, but there's a reason Judas's name is always mentioned last. And we know that, that, that Peter's name is mentioned first for a number of reasons. First of all, notice the, the role that Peter plays. It says that Jesus, he didn't do this to any of the other disciples, names him. Remember, he named apostles. He now calls this man the rock. He didn't say he went through all 12 and says, now your name is going to be this, and your name is going to be this. He looks at Peter. He says, you are now going to be Peter the rock. And if you recall back to chapter 5, Verses 1 through 10, when we first met Peter and James and John, remember on that, on the sea and in that fishing boat. And I talked about how Luke almost 
focuses in on Peter to the exclusion of James and John when none of the other gospel writers did that. And I said there was a reason for that. You would have to wait for a future date. Why, why, why does Luke just narrow in on Peter almost to the exclusion of James and John like he was the only one being commissioned? Because what we see here and what we saw in chapter 5 and we're going to see again all throughout Luke's gospel is that Peter plays a significant role of leadership even among the 12. It's what people, theologians, have called the first among equals. He's the leader of leaders. And we see that when we open up the Acts of the Apostles. What happens on the day of Pentecost? It doesn't say all 12 men took turns. On that day, they all had the same job. They all had the same calling. But on that day, it was Peter, the rock, who was given responsibility when everybody said, what in the world just happened with this whole tongue-speaking thing? And Peter says, oh, this has to do with Jesus and him crucified. Let me take you back to the Old Testament and let me give you a story, a lesson from the Bible that takes you to Jesus. And he preaches and 3,000 people come to saving faith. See, Peter plays a unique role among the 12. So here you have this group of disciples, and among the disciples you have 12 men put, put aside for a special role. And even among these 12, there's a man like Peter who obviously has a different gifting and responsibility even from the other 11. And then think about this, of these names, three of these men, Peter, the apostle John, and most likely Matthew, the tax collector, wrote scripture. Doesn't say, we don't have 12 books of the apostles. With three guys of the apostles that wrote New Testament books, they're not all called to do the same thing. They all didn't have the same leadership gifting. And James, one of the names mentioned here, he would be the first of the apostles to be martyred. Acts 12. Why do I mention this? Because it's a good reminder to us, all disciples of Jesus are called to fulfill the Great Commission, but not everyone is called to fulfill it in the same way. God calls all of us to fulfill the Great Commission. But God called these 12 men among the disciples to have a special role, and even within these 12, there were different roles. There was a Peter, the leader of leaders. And we need to be aware of that and see God's good design for leadership and diversity of gifting, not only among leaders, but in the church. Now, there's one final lesson we learn from these 12 names that, in my opinion, may be the most important lesson of all. But it's a surprising lesson. But it's the most important lesson. What is this lesson? That the foundation on which the church was built is fractured and imperfect. And it was so by divine design. This foundation on which the church would be built, these 12 men, this foundation is fractured and imperfect because of the men Jesus chose that day. And yet it wasn't by accident. Now as if you are in a home and own a home, there is no worse news you can receive from an inspector than you have serious foundation problems. 
That is the worst. But that's exactly what we discover about the household of God. Just look at this list of 12 names. And look at the first. And look at the last. Peter, the rock. The rock. The one who... Denied Jesus three times on the night he needed him most? That, that rock? Well, the, maybe that was just before Jesus died. No, what about the book of Galatians? That we studied last year. Galatians chapter 2. Where Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter because him and Barnabas got up and stopped having table fellowship with Gentiles. And Paul says, that's hypocrisy, brother. And it's so serious, I have to rebuke you publicly. That, there, there's, there's Peter the Rock, one of the 12 foundations of the church. Where do we begin to discuss Judas the traitor? Well, we might be tempted to think Maybe Jesus chose Judas because he didn't know how he would turn out. Maybe this, maybe this is one of those ones where, where God had an oversight. He got, he got it mostly right. Now he's later up in heaven going, oh man, that Judas guy. I had no idea that was coming. Or maybe Jesus got 11 out of the 12 that night when he prayed, let me know your will, let me know your will. And 11 of those names he heard from God, Judas obviously wasn't one. We might be tempted to think that. But actually, Scripture doesn't allow us to think that way. Because John chapter 6, verse 64, tells us that Jesus knew what was in the heart of everyone he encountered, even when everybody else didn't know it. Do you remember later on in John's gospel on the night Jesus is betrayed and he said, someone here at the table is going to betray me. And everybody at the table didn't say, oh yeah, Judas. I mean, <laughs> we've seen it all along. They said, is it us? Is it me? They didn't see that behavior. But listen to what John 6, 64 says. But there were some who did not believe. And then John adds this parenthetical statement. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas was one of the twelve chosen by God to fulfill this role even for a time even though he would betray Jesus for money. Seeing Judas' name on this list of apostles, church, reminds us that the beauty of Christ and the mission of the church cannot be thwarted by the sins of the church or by its leaders, no matter how grievous they are. The beauty of Christ cannot be thwarted, nor the mission of Christ, by the sins of the church or its leaders, 
no matter how grievous they are. And, and I hope you know, when I bring up Judas, I, I don't bring him up in a glib and superficial way as is to minimize or overlook the pain many people, sadly, so many people have experienced due to abuse by a leader in the church or abuse by a church or the disheartening, disillusioning reality of seeing a leader of a church walk away. And in our family of churches, we haven't been exempt from this. Time permitted, I could share stories, even in our own family of churches. One very predominant pastor a number of years ago, predominant in our family of churches, is now not only no longer a pastor, he no longer calls himself a Christian. None of us are exempt from this. And when that happens, it's disillusioning. It's disheartening. But it must not. It must not make us lose our faith in the church or its mission. So you may ask, Josh, how can we not lose heart or be disillusioned when we experience failure and disappointment in the church? Here's why. Because Christ died to purchase the church. Which means that the church matters to him. And because he died for the church, his plan for the church will be accomplished. Listen to these words the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, verse 28, as he addresses some fellow elders who he had invested in in Ephesus, and he's now leaving them Pretty certain he's never going to see them again. And he addresses them and he tells them this. He charges them with these words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. How much does Jesus care about his church? He purchased it. With his own blood. How can we often assess the worth of an object? By asking what is someone willing to give for it? And what I might be willing to give, you may not be willing to give. But an object has its worth in what someone is willing to give. And you know what we find out in the New Testament? How beautiful and sacred and precious is the church of Christ, it's worth the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ purchases. See, let us not forget that the hideous sin of betrayal in which Judas committed caused the Son of God to be crucified, and yet the blood of Christ purchased the church of Christ and secured the mission of Christ. So how do we look at Judas? Same way we look at the Pharisees. In the sense that there is one in his 12 who are already showing us he's going to die. Already telling us, look to the cross. See, Judas' act of betrayal made it possible for Christ to shed his blood for the church which he laid the foundation for when he chose these 12 men. Therefore, 
How should we see the church? How should we see the church? We should see it as imperfect, but irreplaceable. Messy, but beautiful. Weak, but triumphant. So here's my question for you. Is this how you view Christ's church? If not, why not? Maybe you say, I am one of those, Josh, that has been deeply hurt by the church. I don't want to minimize that hurt whatsoever. But I want to ask you this question. Is your perception of the church informed by Scripture or experience? And I wonder how many of us, even if our experience hasn't been bad in the church, I wonder how much of our view of the church is is shaped by our thoughts, our perceptions, our opinions, our likes, our dislikes. How, How often or when was the last time you searched the Scriptures, the New Testament, to say, what does the Bible say about the church? And do I have the same priorities and convictions about the church that the New Testament does? See, we should see the church for what it is. It is precious to Christ. I want to close with these words from another Sovereign Grace pastor, Mark Alderton. In our latest Sovereign Grace journal, this is a hard copy of that journal. This one is dedicated, or the theme of this journal is a passion for the church. We will send out an email later this week. If you have not been familiar with this journal, we would love for you to start Uh, being familiar with these journals and to read them and to benefit from them. And this is the latest one that's out. You don't have to have a hard copy. You can read each article online and listen to the opening article in this journal. I want to close with these words. Mark Alderton Alderton writes in in an article entitled, God's Glorious Plan for the Local Church. He says, picture a typical Sunday morning in an ordinary local church. People of all ages and backgrounds gather at the appointed time and place. Single adults, families with teens or small children, empty nesters, and gray-haired saints. Some have chronic disabilities. Most don't have impressive careers. And all have experienced trials or tragedies, not to mention their own faults and failures. They take their seats, many of which remain empty. There's music and singing, perhaps skillfully, perhaps not. A parent leaves with a crying child. There's trouble with the pastor's microphone. Then there's the sermon. Perhaps it's very good, perhaps not. The meeting ends, people mingle for a while, and the gathering disperses. Meanwhile, outside is a complex and fast-moving world where massively influential events are taking place. Billionaires are are being made and ruined. Breakthrough technologies change our way of life for better or worse. Natural disasters overwhelm our resources. Powerful people vie for dominance and nations rise and fall. It raises a question. Does the ordinary local church really matter against that backdrop? Are gatherings important or even, dare we say, wonderful in the big scheme of things? 
Most of the world has already answered no to that question. But the one who created the world and the church itself tells us differently. The ordinary and perfect gospel-believing local church as an embodiment of the universal church is the most important gathering in the world. Why? Because it's the blueprint of a broken world remade. The hope for fallen humanity is to have God as our creator dwell with us in peace and unending joy. And as we survey the scriptures, we find that God's glorious plan has always been to do exactly that. And the local church is the focal point of that plan being fulfilled. And then he closes with this statement, with this paragraph. Do you see why the ordinary local church is the most important gathering in the world. It may not look impressive with its crying babies, walker-bound elderly, and sick sin people. Yet it's the only institution Jesus said he would build and the only one that will prevail against evil, Matthew 16, 18. It meant enough to Jesus that he died on a cross to purchase it. What could matter more. Indeed, what could be more wonderful than that? This is a glorious truth before us this morning that we could have missed and neglected. But I pray that this morning we've now seen God's glorious plan to build the church It would accomplish and advance his mission to the ends of the earth until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That your word always shows us clearly what we cannot see on our own. And Lord, you have shown us clearly today the importance of your church Father, I pray now that you would take what we've heard and help us to meditate on it, to be affected by it, and to align our lives in light of it. That our priorities and our pursuits and our thinking would all be governed by the word. And that our view of the local church, as weak as she is, as blemished as she is, that she would be beautiful in our eyes and we would see her as your glorious bride who you will return to purify, to glorify, and to call your own. Lord, thank you for making us a part of your church, for purchasing your blood, not just to reconcile us to you, but to make us your We thank you for this word showing us about your glorious plan for the church. Lord, we now want to live in light of what we've heard. Help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.